Thank you. Good morning. Um, I threw verses 9 through 18 on her at the last second, and she did amazing. I was, I didn't even, I didn't even recognize some of the <laughs> words in there, and she, yes, yes. So thank you. I think the Spirit anointed you to say all the right words. That was good. Um, get, went to a conference this weekend with uh, several people from the church, Nine Marks Conference in Portland on the gospel. It was really good. Um, if uh, who, who of you went to that conference? Can you just raise your hand? Is it only one? No, two, three. If you, everyone look around and see them and then ask them about the conference uh, and, and what, uh, what was the best part of the conference for them. Um, it, was, it was really good. It was on the gospel about the gospel uh, declared through God, man, Christ's response and the gospel displayed through, through love, through leadership and through our witness. Um, and that's what we want to be about too this morning is the gospel. Um, how many of you are a little sleepy from losing an hour of sleep. Yes, me too. Uh, not only did I go to the conference, we lost an hour of sleep and we got a new puppy. So that was, I mean, that was probably really smart of me to do that. Uh, but the Lord will be good and uh, he will feed us from his word this morning. Two, two recommendations before we get started. These are on our bookstall, okay, so 12 and $8. Um, I, I read part of this, what, uh, You Are What You Love by James Smith. Read the first chapter, it was really good. I can't recommend the whole book because I haven't read the whole book, but the first chapter was super good uh, and informing to me. So I'll recommend the first chapter. And then Discipling by Mark Dever, um, How to Help Others Follow Jesus. So we're going to be talking about discipleship a little bit this morning. But I want to start by, uh, anybody, if you've read um, J.K. Rowling's uh, Harry Potter series, the first book called The Sorcerer's Stone uh, you'll remember there's a chapter in there called the Mirror of Erised. And, um, and Harry, when he, he looks in it, he first sees a bunch of people, and then it sort of focuses in, and he sees uh, a man and a woman, uh, and the woman has, you know, uh, something that looks like Harry. And he looks closer, and the man, I think, is his hair or something is a little messy like Harry's hair. Uh, and he's like, oh, this is amazing. He doesn't know his parents, but uh, he's, he's now able to see them, uh, and it's just, he, he keeps wanting to come back to this mirror. But he not only wants to come back to the mirror, he wants to, he wants to bring someone else to the mirror to see if they can see what he sees. So he brings his friend Ron, and Ron steps in the front of the mirror, and he doesn't see Harry and his parents. Ron sees himself. Um, he, he sees him, him, himself as uh, a head boy uh, and holding this trophy. Um, and I can't, I don't remember the sport now that <laughs> I should have written it down. What was it? Quidditch. Quidditch. Yes, everyone else knew it. Okay, so you read the book. That's good. So uh, he's holding the Quidditch trophy. Um, and, and so Harry's a little confused, uh, uh, but they both want to look again in it. And finally, you know, Harry's sitting in front of the mirror and Dumbledore is there. And uh, Dumbledore, you know, door says, what are you doing here, Harry? And he's like, well, I just, you know, I'm in this mirror, and I can see, I can see my parents, you know. I, I, I really want to know them. I can see them. And, uh, you know, Dumbledore says what this mirror is. The mirror shows you your deepest desires. It shows you the deepest longings of your heart. It's the mirror of Erised. 
It's a mirror of desire. Dumbledore says the happiest man, if he looked in the mirror, he would see nothing but himself. I wonder if we had a mirror here today that showed you your deepest desire, what it would be. Maybe it's graduation day. Maybe it's your wedding day. Maybe it's vacation or money or pleasure. You know, the thing about desires is they control our actions. They brought Harry back to the, to the mirror. Uh, and, and without Dumbledore's help, he would have come back to the mirror and he would have sat there wishing of what might have been and died in front of the mirror. The desires in us actually start to become our authority, controlling us, telling us what to do. It, they're our authority. You know, and, and that's partly, that's because that's how we were made. We were, do you remember the first question of the Westminster Catechism? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. See, we were made for a purpose, for an end, for a goal. And that goal is our authority. But as sinners, we, we take the goal, the main purpose, and the end, and we distort it, don't we? We want to push off all authority except our own. You know, Augustine said it this way, Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and restless are our hearts until they find rest in thee. And what that fifth century church father was saying is that we were made to desire, but we were made for and by God. We were, so we were made to desire God. And we, when we worship other things and we treat them like God, that makes us restless. And until we find our satisfaction in his good authority, we will not find any rest. We will keep pursuing those things that, that are even good but cannot satisfy so today we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at this passage of scripture, Mark one, and we're going to actually go through verses fourteen through twenty, and uh, uh, we're going to look at the one we were made for calls us to follow him and become his disciple, right? So there's this authority here, the one we were made for, the one we were made by, and for we were created for desire, but the desire is to be God Himself, and that one calls us to follow Him, to leave everything, follow Him, and become disciple makers, that is bringing other people along to follow him, fishers of men. The one we were made for calls us to follow him and become disciple makers. And we're going to look at that in just this, these four pegs we're going to hang all our thoughts on, are rad, the radical context of discipleship, the radical call of discipleship, the radical cost of discipleship, and the radical response of the disciples. Okay, so the radical cost, radical call, Sorry, the radical context, the radical call, the radical cost, and the radical response. So the radical context of this call is, is we'll, we're going back to 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15. You remember what, what Jesus said. Uh, now, after John was arrested, that, that prophet that was arrested, he was turned over to the authorities by, by Herod. Uh, we're, we're not given any details about why, but we just know he's arrested. He was delivered over. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming 
the gospel. We remember that's the good news of God. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So John is, is handed over. We'll look further on when Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen to him and why he came. He came not to be served, but to serve. And how, how he's going to serve is to give his life as a ransom for many. How that's going to happen is he's going to be handed over. He's going to be delivered up to the authorities. We get just a little hint, a little pointing forward to what, what's going to happen to Jesus in John's own life. He's delivered over. This is the context of the call. Jesus comes in, now John had come, and now here's Jesus, he's proclaiming the gospel of God, and that gospel's good news about himself, the king has brought his kingdom, therefore repent, turn from where you've been trusting in and turn to Jesus, he's your only hope, the context of the call. And you can see, as as the the narrative continues and pushes forward, you can see in verse 16 that we, we get the place where Jesus was, he's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on just a little bit further, he saw saw James and the son of Zebedee and, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So you see the place of ministry is right alongside the Sea of Galilee. And you remember that Jesus also was from Galilee. He was this 30-year-old prophet from this unknown place called Nazareth in Galilee. And, and Galilee is sort of, uh, you know, compared to Judea and Jerusalem, Galilee is this kind of a backwoods place. Think of like you guys are gonna hate me. Think of Corvallis and Eugene, right? Not from our perspective, but from their perspective, right? They're, you know, these pretentious hipsters. Sorry if you're from Eugene. Uh, these, you know, pretentious people, and they look at us, and we're just a bunch of, you know, like pig farmers. That's that's kind of what it was here. Like here's this here's this servant, this prophet from Nazareth of Galilee, ministering in Galilee. Now he's gonna he's gonna follow. He's gonna uh, he's gonna collect followers of himself, disciples of himself, in Galilee. Galilee, why not Jerusalem? Why not Eugene? Well, we know why, right? We know why. So he here he is at the the sea, and he's walking alongside, and he sees these two sets of brothers. Jesus sees Simon and Andrew. James and John, and then, and then it says that John and James' father is there as well. And uh, they're in a boat, and we know they're fishermen. Um, and here, the context of it, it, of his call is remember. Remember, it's the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is saying he's the king, and he's bringing his kingdom. And this is what the call looks like. You know, one... Uh, one New Testament theologian says this, the kingdom of God wasn't a new political agenda. It wasn't a new piece of good advice. It wasn't a new type of spirituality. It was good and extremely dangerous news that the living God was on the move and it was indeed now coming into his kingdom. And it demands a definite response. It was God's 
good news. This is what Jesus is bringing. He's bringing it right to these fishermen who are in their boats. They're casting out their nets. They're mending their nets. They're with their dad and the hired servants. And here comes Jesus just right along the dock. And he says, come follow me. And, he, and what he's saying is, in, when, as he is the king of the kingdom, he's saying the kingdom of God is his kingship. It's his rule. It's his authority. It's what you are made to desire. As you, as, you, as you look into the mirror and you see what you actually desire more than God, Jesus is coming and saying, I'm the one you were made for. This kingdom is what you were made for. Come follow me. At its essence, the kingdom of God is his kingship, his rule, and authority. George uh, Ladd said that. Um, so rule in the hearts of his people. He, that's what he came to do. The kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts of his people. It's not, he's not, setting, he's not, it's not a government takeover, right? So we're, you know, we're in a political season again. We're in election season again. And I just, I just want to remind you that as Christians, we're not about taking over the government. It's okay to be involved in government. Please do as a Christian. But this isn't about government takeover. Bringing the kingdom of God is not about you being in government or voting for the right person, whether you're a Republican or Democrat. That's not what it's about. It's about a personal relationship with God that's going to affect every area of our lives, and that is radical. That's the context of the call that he's in. Now, now think about this radical call to discipleship. Think about the nature of it. So the one in, in verses 17 and 20, you, you notice that Jesus, he, he came and he called. He used words and he, he just, it was, a simple, it was a simple declaration, follow me. And you notice the one with all authority just passes by the Sea of Galilee, right? This, by this, this despised sort of place, this 30-year-old prophet from Galilee starts his ministry here. He just passes by, and I think, I think we're supposed to be, the reader's just supposed to be a little like, ooh, really? Like he called and they came? Mark doesn't give us any other context. You know, John tells us that uh, they probably knew John the Baptist, so they probably knew a little something about Jesus and his baptism uh, and, and about his call and what he was saying, but Mark doesn't tell us that. It's, this is supposed to be radical for us. That someone comes, you know, just walks by at your job in school and says, follow me. And he expects you to just drop everything and follow him. I would be like, dude, what, who are you to tell me to follow you? That's part of the issue. See, first that Jesus in this radical call, uh, Jesus is the authority you, you notice his authority in this call. You, 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 you notice that even in the type of men that he's calling, he's calling them because he's, they're going to bring him the most glory. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't go to the synagogue and call the religious people. He goes to get fishermen. I don't know why fishermen, but he does it. Because it's going to bring him glory. Because he gets to choose. See, do you see? This is Jesus using his authority as king to call whoever he wants. This is Jesus' authority. But 
Secondly, Jesus' authority is seen in the way he calls. Not just who he calls, but in, in the way he calls. Just, just passing by, a simple call. And it's a simple call, but it's a profound promise. Did you, did you pick up on it? In verse 17, Jesus said, follow me and I will make, I will make you become fishers of men. Uh, the, the promise is that Jesus is going to do something. He, he just says, follow me and I am going to do it. I have the authority to do it and I'm going to do it. I think that helps us just thinking about discipleship a little bit. Jesus, yes, has called you to follow him and obey him, but what he has called you to, he has already provided. He has already guaranteed that it's going to happen. Isn't he good? Isn't this a good use of Jesus' authority? Doesn't this start to change Does the distortion in the mirror of, of the desires that you have is, doesn't, doesn't it change a little bit to little glimpses of, of what it could be, what it should be, as you bring yourself under Jesus' authority? He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, fishers of people, disciple makers. The call will change their work. Become, becoming a disciple meant um, that he was going to change their work to, from catching fish to catching people. So first they become followers, then they become disciple makers. First they become disciples and then disciple makers. How does this work? How, how does, we know how it worked in the disciples' life, right? Through fits and starts and um, through, through belief and unbelief, through uh, eventually um, denying Jesus and then being restored by him. How does this work in our life? Becoming a disciple, Jesus is calling us to become a disciple in every part of our life. Now, Jesus called these fishermen, Simon and Andrew, James and John, to change their vocation, okay? This is an example of the kingdom call, okay? It's just a, but it's one example. These were apostles. Uh, the, these were the first disciples of Jesus who were going to change the world, all right? So Jesus may be calling you to change your work, but probably not. He might. And under his authority, you should be willing to do that. But ordinarily, most people are just called to keep doing the same thing that they are doing, but now as followers of Jesus, it changes everything. The gospel changes everything. So how, how then might we apply discipleship to our work? Stay-at-home moms, software engineers, um, city workers, students, professors. How, how does God call us to do that? I, I found something called the theologyofwork.org very helpful in, in thinking through how we apply, how, how we um, apply the gospel to our work. It, it says this, although most Christians are not called to leave their jobs and become wandering preachers, we are called to ground our identity in Christ. Whether we leave our jobs or not, a disciple's identity is no longer fisherman, tax collector, or anything else except follower of Jesus. This challenges us to resist the temptation to make our work the defining element of our sense of who we are. And when we do that, we're just showing, when, when we make our work, our status, 
PhD student, pastor, whatever you are, you make that your identity, you're, you're looking in the mirror and seeing something distorted. And Jesus says, follow me and come under my authority. And what you'll see in the mirror is the happiest person on earth. You'll see what I meant you to be, fully delighting in him. Following him means finding our identity in him. That's what it means to become a disciple at its very basic. He said, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you what I want you to be. I am going to do this. I lost uh, my grandfather, died this week on Thursday. Uh, He was almost 90, and um, I loved him. He lived a tortured life. He always felt like he didn't measure up. He was tortured by uh, the things he experienced in the Korean War, by past decisions he made. And so every time I was with him, I I was trying to remind him that Jesus loved him, that God loved him. In Christ, God loves you, Grandpa. Um, And I, I think my grandpa had faith in Jesus, but it was weak faith. It was, a, it was small faith. And, and this passage reminded me that it is not the size of my faith, the quality of my faith, but the object of my faith that will keep me secure until I get to heaven. I find my identity in Christ, not in how much I believe. Maybe that will help you as you become a disciple. This isn't about the prayer you pray, the amount of faith or your sincerity. This is about who you're trusting in now. Who are you following? Is it Jesus? Is it the real Jesus of the Bible? It's a a radical call. That's, That's how you become a disciple. Jesus makes you one. Jesus Jesus makes you into a disciple just by his call and and then helping you to follow. Second, how do you become a disciple maker? Disciple maker. You you know, the the language is funny, right? It's like, is he just using a play on words? I mean, that's part of it. He's he's saying, you're fishermen, but I will make you fishers of men, of people. You know, fishermen, they they sort of, they catch and they trap their fish, right? In that day, they threw out nets and then... uh, I read somewhere that one of the fishermen would, would dive down and he would gather the net up and come back. I don't know how that works. But, you know, fishermen, they, they, they lure a fish in. They, they catch them by trapping them. And now Jesus is he's changing that metaphor a little bit for us to think, you're, you're going to start catching people. You're going to start trapping people, but, but not in a negative way. You're going to use the gospel. You're going to use what they were made for the kingdom of God and God himself to bring them into it, to save them from all the, tra- the other traps that are, that, are, that, are, that are taking their identity. They're going to become fishers. They're going to become disciple makers. And you just, you know, just flowing along with the narrative as, we, as we've seen what John the Baptist and Jesus' method was, we also, we also can see a pattern there for our own use. Do you remember what the method was of proclaiming the gospel? Well, it was proclaiming the gospel. The method uh, of, of Jesus telling about himself, of John telling about it, was proclamation. It was heralding the good news. And this becomes, this becomes a paradigm for us. 
And programs can be useful, but it's, it's, not, it's proclamation over programs. It's programs do not become useful if we're not telling the good news in the way that Jesus wanted us to. The one who made us says we will be rightly related to him when we are helping others become rightly related to him. That's part of being a disciple is be a disciple maker. You know it from our own mission statement. I shouldn't have said that because I don't have it memorized. But you know it from our own mission statement. You know, it's people who are in awe of the gospel, embodying the gospel, and giving their lives away for the gospel. Is that right? Yes. Okay. See? The Holy Spirit anointed me. Thank you for praying that, McKenzie. Uh, this is it. It's, disciple, it's disciples who are disciple makers, who are, who are making people, who are, who are helping people to rightly follow Jesus. I recommend that book, Discipling, by Mark Dever. It's just some, some good things about what discipling is and, and just how we can do it and how, how we should be doing it together. Bring, bring people into your discipling relationships. Community groups are a great way to do it. Meeting up through the week and, and, and going for lunch or drinks and just talking about the Bible. This is what Jesus has called us to do, to make disciples. And he promised he promised, I will make you fishers of men. So you might say, man, I'm not a good disciple maker. It's okay. He promised. He's, he's going to make you one. So devote yourself to this. How do, how do we do that? We know God and his word. We pray. Uh, we have solitude. But we have community. We invite people over to our house for a meal. Go to the park. You know, stay-at-home moms. I love what's happening with some of the some of the moms in our group. There's this, you know, there's there's friends getting together, and they're and they're trying to build intentional relationships. That's how discipleship happens. And if you will start to get intentional about discipleship, guess what will happen to you? You will start to be discipled yourself because that's how it works. Here's the call. It's a radical call. Be a disciple, follow Jesus at all costs, no matter what it is, and bring others along with you. <laughs> it's, this is what Jesus has called us to. Thirdly, that, you know, that was the radical call. This, the radical cost, it does cost you something. Maybe you're not a Christian. We, we should just tell you that the Christian life actually does cost something. Following Jesus does come at a cost, and we can see it in the narrative right there in verses 18 and 20. And I'll just, I just I want you to know that the cost, here, here's what the cost is. He reshapes our identity, and he reorders our love. He reshapes our identity, and he reorders our loves. This is, this is what Jesus does, and it is radical, right? Because that, that mirror where you see your deepest desires that thing that drives you, that authority that is over you, that is controlling you, uh, and, and sometimes ways you don't even know, Jesus is saying, I, I want something better for you. Whatever you see in that mirror, think about it. What, what do you see there? Jesus is saying he is better than that. And it's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. He's, he's going to reorder your love. He's going to reshape your identity. He's going to reorder your loves. I, I think that's sort of what's happening here in uh, verses 18 and 20. That immediately they left their nets and followed him. And in verse 20, 
immediately he called them. They, they left. Not just their family business, they left their father in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. He, he's reshaping who they are. He, what he calls them from, their former identity of fishermen, uh, sons of Zebedee, in the family business. And however you see yourself in the mirror, Jesus is, is calling you. He's reshaping your identity. Now you're a follower, a son, a daughter, a worshiper. But it, it takes worship from other things. It, it, it's taking worship from what your heart most desires. He's calling you to, to worship him, to follow him. Well, I wonder what he's calling you to turn from. See, the call, the call involves leaving. It calls repentance. Remember, that's the call. The radical context of the call is repentance and faith. Repentance, trust in him. I wonder what he's calling you to turn from. Anything, an idol, right, is anything you love more than God. Is anything that gets in the way of your relationship with God. It's, it's not just something, a little statue you bow down to. It could be education. It could be your work. It could be your family. It could be a whole, it, 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 it could be <clears throat> how many followers you have on Instagram. Anything that gets in the way of following God, he, he's asking you to allow your identity to be reshaped by following him. Not only does he reshape your identity, uh, as in leaving the family business, I just want you to know, like, I, for most of us, it doesn't mean, like, leaving mom and dad and, and you know, and never seeing them again. It, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean not loving your family. It means loving God more and putting and reordering your priorities. So not only does God reshape our identity, he reorders our loves. You know, this culture tells us to love ourselves at all costs. It's actually intolerant for you to say that you should be loving something else other than what you want. It's intolerant for me to tell you to love Jesus more than yourself. That's what our culture tells us. It's, uh, you know, uh, Davey pointed this out to me and when people are big and God is small. But Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way. Divine as the life of Jesus is, what an outrage to represent it as tantamount to the universe. To seize, on, to seize on an accidental good man that happened to exist somewhere at some time and say to the newborn soul, behold thy pattern, go in the harness of the past individual, assume his manners, speak his speech. This is the madness of Christendom. I turn my back on these usurpers. The soul always believes in itself. What's, what's he saying? What are Christians, what is Christ usurping? He's usurping the right for the autonomous individual to make his own rules, to follow his own destiny, to pursue whatever he wants to see in the mirror. You're, you're only true to yourself when you do what you want, the culture tells us. Jesus is coming, he's reshaping our identity, he's reordering our loves, and he's telling us, you're only truly fully human when you follow me. 
It just happens when you start following him, when you repent of your former loves and trust only in Christ. And when you do, you'll, you'll see the one that your heart always desired. You will finally be home. The one who made you for himself has come to be your true desire when you've repented and believed, your true authority. Jesus is, he's remaking our humanity into followers of Christ. How will you respond to the call? How will you respond? Jesus has given you the response he wants, repent and believe. I hope it will be total abandonment. I I hope you will leave behind the things that will never save you and cling to the one who made you for himself and gave himself to save you. Friends, that is the gospel of God. It's, it's, it's asking you to turn from things that are, that are going to destroy you, that aren't good for you, and, and to come to him. See, the disciples following Jesus, it's, it's going to take them to a cross where, he will dis- where Jesus will display a spectacular act of love by giving up himself, dying on the cross for you and for me. As he lived for us. So he, he, he's dying for us. He died for us. As they follow him to death, he does not make them die for their own sins, but he dies in their place. The one who made us for himself gives himself so that we could be loved by God. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this what your heart desires? Won't you turn to him? Won't you turn from from whatever your loves are, even if they're good things? All the things, most of the things I've mentioned are good things. It's good to love your family. It's good to be good at your work. It's it's good to to be a good neighbor and, and to do good things in the community. But they're not ultimate. Only Jesus is. cost is radical. He's asking you to reshape your identity, to reorder your loves. He's just asking you to give everything. He's he's asking you to turn your back on it and just turn to him. And he says, "I, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you who you were supposed to be. You don't worry about it. Don't worry about if your faith is enough or you said it the right way or if you're truly believing. Put your trust in Christ. Just look at him in all his beauty and, and believe. He loves you more than you can imagine. It's a radical cost. And lastly, this is the radical response of the disciples. Notice what they did in verses 18 and 20. They left. They left. They went. It's going to hurt. It's, 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 there's, there's going to be some pain there because you've taken that identity so close to you. It's become, it's become part of you. That's, that's like a, it's like one of your arms, right? You've, that identity is, is so closely tied to you that when Jesus says to leave it, he's, he's actually asking you to pluck out your eyes, to cut off your hand and follow him. It's going to hurt. 
Anything that gets in the way of it, just get rid of it. And yes, that's going to hurt. And they left, not knowing where it would take them. It took them, all of them, eventually to their death, proclaiming the Messiah's resurrection. They left. But notice the nature of their leaving, okay? And we're going we're gonna to end here. But notice the, the nature of their response. The nature of their leaving is it was immediate. They immediately left. And, and that is one of John's favorite words. But I, I do think uh, he's not just using it for rhetorical purposes. He's reminding us that that radical call um, needs to be followed right away. Now, there's ways to manipulate that call to, you know, we could have an altar. Most of you probably don't know what that is. But, you know, there's, you know, bringing people forward and, and asking them to make a decision. It's not about making a decision. It's just about following Christ. It's not about praying a prayer. It's about following Christ. But you aren't promised tomorrow. I know every one of you thinks, they, no one thinks, Lord willing, I'm going to live tomorrow. Right? All, all, of, all of the college students in the room, has anyone given any thought to that? Right? Like, I'll be alive tomorrow. Has anyone, thought, has anyone looked at their hand and thought, man, eventually that hand's going to be a skeleton in a box and I'm going to die. Anybody thought about it? Yeah, you will today, though, right? <laughs> He's calling you to respond immediately because you're not your own God. You can't keep yourself alive. And because it's good for you. It's good for you. Immediately, because immediately you will have good given to you. So won't you respond today? I, I know. You know, in, in one way, this is radical. But another way, it's actually ordinary. This is what you were made for. This is, you know, one day this is, this is going to be the ordinary thing. Everyone's going to be worshiping Jesus just like they're supposed to be, interacting with each other just like we're supposed to be. It's very, it's very ordinary, but for us it's very radical. And it goes back to our desires, our authority. Will you come under the authority of Jesus and trust him? Whatever is keeping you from that, he's better. He's better. Let's pray.